Thank you for tuning in for another episode of What Had Happened, a true crime podcast. I'm Kimberly, your host, bringing you lesser-known true crime stories. I know I stated initially that What Had Happened was going to be a bi-monthly podcast, but after a few requests that I drop more content, I decided to drop another episode immediately. Yay! Last episode, I discussed the 1986 murder of Rita French in Broomfield, Colorado. For today's episode, I'll be discussing the Freeway Phantom, Washington, D.C.'s first serial killer who has never been apprehended. A half a million people descended upon the nation's capital, demanding to be heard, causing the capital to completely shut down. The National Guard, federal troops, and local authorities were present to maintain order. It sounds like I'm describing the protests of 2020, right? Wrong. While the climate sounds and feels familiar to us due to the recent current events, I'm actually referring to the April 24, 1971 anti-war protests, which catapulted the district into weeks of massive civil disobedience. It was during this time that a serial killer began his year-and-a-half-long spree. Today we will be examining what had happened to the victims of the the Freeway Phantom. Warning, this episode includes graphic material and subject matter which includes children. Listener discretion is advised. Reports indicate that there were over 100 active serial killers in the 70s, murdering throughout the U.S. It would seem as though at that time, it was like the Wild West for serials, the country a sick amusement park ripe with victims. The civil unrest in Washington, D.C. provided the perfect cover and concealment, and the demographics lent the victims. It was the perfect time for a serial killer to act out on his impulses. On April 25th, he would abduct his first of six victims, 13-year-old Carol Denise Spinks. 13-year-old Carol was one of eight children and an identical twin raised by their single mother, Allentine. The Spinks family resided in southeast Washington, D.C., less than a mile from the Maryland border. Of the twins, Carolyn and Carol, Carol was the more quiet and timid. Bebe, as she was affectionately nicknamed, was small for her age, standing at about four feet tall. Allentine, their mother, was described as no-nonsense and one that everyone knew they had to obey. The house rule was that when she wasn't home, the children weren't allowed to leave without her permission. You don't open the door for Jesus Christ if he knocks on the door, not unless I tell you to let him in, Evander Spinks Belks would say of her mother. On April 25th, the Spinks children stayed home while their mother went nearby to Maryland to visit a relative. Shortly after leaving, the Spinks children heard a knock on the door. Their 24-year-old sister, Valerie, who no longer lived in the Spinks' home, was visiting a friend next door. She wanted a sibling to go to the 7-Eleven a half a mile away across the Maryland border for her. 
Knowing the house rule, the Spinks children all said no. Valerie was described as continuing to bang on the door, pestering her siblings until finally Carol volunteered to run the errand for her sister. Along her way to the store, Carol bumped into her mother, who scolded her for being out of the home. Alentine told Carol she would see her when she got home and watched her daughter walk into the store. That would be the last time Alentine would lay eyes on her child. Thirty minutes passed and Evander began getting concerned. She went next door to ask her sister Valerie where Carol was, only to find that she hadn't returned from the store. Frantic to find Carol, Evander ran back to the store and was told by the clerk that Carol had come and gone already. By the time Alentine returned home, all of the alarm bells were going off with the Spinks children. Their nervousness consumed all of the air in the room. When Alentine asked where Carol was, the children told her she hadn't been seen since leaving the 7-Eleven hours before. Immediately, Alentine reported Carol missing, but was given the very problematic and dismissive response that Carol had probably just run away. I've heard this recounted numerous times in other true crime stories, especially during that time in history. Missing and abducted children weren't even looked for until it was too late because they were assumed to have been a runaway. The Spinks family, on the other hand, believed differently and immediately assembled a search party canvassing the neighborhood, retracing Carol's presumed route to and from the 7-Eleven for hours. Carolyn would look back on that time and say, I knew something was wrong. I knew. When Evander said behind tears, my mother tried to be strong for all of us, but we could hear my mother miss her baby. It broke my heart. Six days later, on May 1st, police discovered the body of Carol Spinks in the rear of St. Elizabeth's Hospital off of Route 295. Carol was dressed but missing her shoes. There were abrasions and bruises visible on her discarded body, as well as, a ligature, as ligature marks around her neck indicative of strangulation. According to the coroner's report, Carol suffered wounds to her face, neck, and hands, as well as being sodomized and strangled. The report also noted that there was undigested food in Carol's stomach, indicating that she was kept alive for some time before her murderer or for her murder and was fed. Sergeant Romaine Jackson was assigned to the case. In the days following the discovery of Carol's body, DC police canvassed the area for witnesses. It was during this time that a woman and her daughter stated that they had seen Carol walking home from the store carrying a bag, giving police the idea that Carol was abducted close to her residence. It was also during this week that Carol was discovered that the 1971 May Day protests in D.C. occurred, leading to the detainment and arrests of 12,000 protesters. During this time, the police officers and detectives working the Carol Spinks case were dispatched to emergency duty, and Carol's case was placed on the back burner. Two months later, on July 8, 1971, the killer would abduct his second victim, 
16-year-old Darlenia Denise Johnson from Congress Heights as she walked to her summer job at Oxon Hills Rec Center. Denise never arrived to work. Upon realizing Darlenia was missing, her mother reported it to police. A witness would come forward as seeing Darlenia in an old black car with an African-American male. During the time that Darlenia was missing, her mother received a handful of disturbing phone calls with heavy breathing on the other line. Darlenia's mother remained hopeful that it was her daughter trying to make contact. The last phone call Darlenia's mother received, a male voice stated, I killed your daughter. The phone call couldn't be traced at the time. Darlenia had been missing for 11 days when her body was discovered, having been dumped approximately 15 feet away from where Carol Spinks' body was recovered, after being spotted by a police officer driving in the area of 295. A week prior to Darlenia's body being found behind St. Elizabeth's Hospital, an anonymous call to police was made. The caller gave police the location of Darlenia's body, as well as details that could only be known by her killer. By the time Darlenia's body was found a week later, decomposition in the unforgiving summer heat made it impossible to determine whether she had been sexually assaulted, as well as the manner of her death. What was noted was Darlenia, just like Carol, had been dressed without shoes and displayed signs of strangulation. Eight days after the remains of Darlenia Johnson were recovered on July 27, 1971, 10-year-old Brenda Faye Crockett from, northwest, from the northwest area of D.C. went missing. Brenda's sister, Bertha, remembered her sister as being a beautiful girl who loved church. On the evening of July 27, the mood was good in the Crockett family, planned to settle in and watch a movie. But before that, Brenda's mother would send her to the store a block or so away and should have returned home before dark. Bertha recalled it should have been a quick trip for the 10-year-old, but after an hour, when Brenda had yet to return home, her mother went out to search for her. While Brenda's mother was looking around the neighborhood for her daughter, the phone at the Crockett home rang. Seven-year-old Bertha recalled answering the phone. Bertha said Brenda was on the other end crying. Brenda told Bertha that a white man had picked her up and she was heading home in a cab. Brenda also told her little sister she believed that she was in Virginia before hurriedly saying bye and hanging up. Bertha said she could remember at the time it not making sense to send Brenda home in a cab if the store was literally up the street. At seven, she had no true understanding of what was happening to her sister. The next phone call that came in was answered by Brenda's mother's boyfriend. Brenda parroted the same statements she made to Bertha not long before only adding to the conversation that she was alone in a house with a white man and asking, quote, did my mother see me? If your mother had seen you, she would have gotten you, he told Brenda, who was confused and unaware of what her fate was. 
when the mother's boyfriend asked to speak to the child abductor. He stated he heard heavy footsteps approaching in the background before Brenda said, I'll see you, and hung up. Police quickly determined that Brenda was placing those calls under the instruction of her abductor, giving misinformation to send police in the wrong direction of their search as a means to buy time. At 5.50 a.m. the next day, a hitchhiker discovered Brenda's body in a, quote, conspicuous location on the U.S. Route 50 near the Baltimore-Washington Parkway in Prince George's County, Maryland. Like Carol and Darlinia, Brenda was found shoeless. It was concluded Brenda had been raped and strangled, and a scarf was knotted around her neck. Her small body discarded in the open on the side of the road. At this time, it was evident that the killer was escalating. The time between abductions and murders were becoming increasingly shorter. It was also at this time that the killer's patterns began to emerge. Young African-American girls were vanishing into thin air in broad daylight and turning up sexually assaulted, murdered, and shoeless along the freeways that surrounded Washington, D.C. Evander Spinks Belk recalled, after the body of Brenda Crockett was found in Prince George's County, Maryland, reporters began hitting the pavement investigating. She said that, quote, the news will tell you more than the police will tell you. And it was frightening to her. Carol would say that she was just too scared and feared whomever it was that took her twin sister could get her as well. October 1st, 1971, 12-year-old Niamisha Yates became the fourth victim. At 7 p.m. that evening, in the northeast area of D.C., Niamisha's father had sent her to the Safeway grocery store one block away from her home. Like all of the other children abducted while returning home from a quick trip to the store. She was seen entering and leaving the store with her purchases and never to be seen again. Roughly three hours later, Ninamisha's body was discovered off the shoulder of Pennsylvania Avenue, known as Route 4, in Prince George's County, Maryland. Like the other victims, Ninamisha was raped, strangled, and missing her shoes. With, the four, with this, the fourth African-American little girl from the D.C. area to be kidnapped, raped, and murdered, and the, com the community was in an outrage. There was a predator honing in on the girls in the community, heightening everyone's senses of fear. It was upon the discovery of Niamisha's body that the media and the community began to, sus to suspect the murders were being perpetrated by one killer. It was thought that the killer was utilizing the I-295 Beltway to stalk his prey and get in and out of D.C. easily. This is when the Daily News coined the moniker, the Freeway Phantom. Local authorities weren't convinced entirely that these murders were being perpetrated by a single individual, but upon this fourth murder, they reached out to the FBI for assistance. When brought in to assist the, the Metropolitan Police Department of the District Columbia, or the MPDC, 
their primary role was that of examining evidence because the police department's laboratory facilities were unable to conduct the amount of forensic tests that the FBI was at the time. During the course of forensics testings, it was found that all of the victims had in fact been strangled. Pubic hairs consistent with that of an African-American male were found in the underwear of three of the victims, and it was concluded to not be theirs. It was becoming clear to investigators that the suspect they were searching for was an African-American male who was singularly committing these murders. It was at this time that investigators realized they were potentially dealing with DC's first known serial killer. A month and a half passed before the freeway phantom would strike again. Baltimore native Brenda Denise Woodward would become his fifth victim. On November 15th, after having dinner with a classmate, 18-year-old Brenda would last be reported as boarding the 11.30 p.m. city bus to go home. Six hours later, police discovered Brenda's body in a grassy area near Prince George's County's hospital along an access ramp to Route 202 from the Baltimore-Washington Parkway. Brenda also had been raped, but she was also stabbed multiple times and strangled. Unlike the other victims, Brenda was still wearing her shoes, and a red velvet jacket was draped over her chest. Inside the pocket of the jacket, police found a letter from the killer. The freeway phantom's note read as this. This is tantamount to my insensitivity to people, especially women. I will admit the others when you catch me if you can. Freeway Phantom with the community desperate to apprehend the freeway phantom, MPDC became inundated with tips. People were reporting priests, teachers, doctors, and fellow police officers, among others. Virtually every male in the D.C. area was looked at as a potential suspect. In an attempt to narrow down their search, detectives revisited the handwritten note found with Brenda's body. Upon handwriting analysis, it was proven that the handwriting was that of the victim. What was most interesting about the handwriting was it was even and proved Brenda was not under stress when she was instructed to write it by the killer, which indicated to detectives Brenda potentially knew her killer and was comfortable with him when she composed the note. Although, sidebar, and pardon my French, because I'm about to go off on a tear. Here we go. You ready for it? I don't know anybody who in their right fucking mind would be okay with writing something like that and then signing it the Freeway Phantom and not having, like, a couple of palpitations of the heart. I think that she did what she was told to do and she just had a steady hand. I am not going to say that she felt comfortable composing that note because of the content of the note. That is my sidebar. Whew. As I said, they said that she wasn't, um, she seemed comfortable with her killer when she composed the note. 
FBI agents found that the use of the adjective tantamount was highly unusual as it isn't now nor then a word that was a part of most people's general general vernacular. Vernacular is actually a part of my vernacular and I can't say it. Heyo, but a bunch. Investigators felt the note revealed a possible motive. The killers were getting back at something. The killer was getting back at something or someone for some unknown judgment placed onto him in his mind's eye. With the media and the FBI covering and working the five homicides, the heat was on. It was assumed that this caused the phantom to take a hiatus and stop killing. Although tensions were still high as the months began to come and go with no murders, the sense of dread started to lift within the community. That is until the freeway phantom struck for the sixth and final time, September 5th, 1972. Diane Denise Williams was a 17-year-old high school senior at Ballou High School. Patricia, Denise's younger sister, would say that she idolized her sister Diane because she was beautiful and intelligent. Patricia would say that she always thought her sister would become a singer, actress, or model. On the night of her murder, 17-year-old Diane prepared dinner for her family and then, with permission from her parents, went to see her boyfriend James. Their only condicile was that Diane returned home by 10 p.m. for curfew. After their visit, James was said to have escorted his girlfriend Diane to the bus stop, where he waited for her until she departed on the 11.20 p.m. bus. The following morning, Diane's body was found on Route 295, just south of the district line. Like the others, Diane was fully clothed, and strangulation was the manner of death. It was believed that there was no sexual assault, and the semen found on her clothing was believed to be that of her boyfriend, James. Diane was also found wearing her white tennis shoes that had her name inscribed on the heels. When Diane's boyfriend later was questioned about the semen found on her clothing, James denied having sexual intercourse with Diane the night that he saw her. Upon doing a cross-comparison of all the victim's clothing in the hopes that the lab would find evidence that was overlooked initially, that's when a major discovery was made. A green fiber was found on five of the six victims, Darlenia Johnson being the exception due to the advanced decomposition of her body. It was believed that the green synthetic fiber was linked to the vehicle. With this discovery, authorities began to also began looking at known predators in the area. Also, and I skipped this part, I jumped the gun, no pun intended. When investigators found out that James and Diane had not had sexual intercourse and the semen on her clothing was that of the freeway killers that was what sent them back into the lab to re-examine all of the other victims clothing to see if there was something else that had been missed initially and that's when the green synthetic fiber that was most likely linked to a vehicle had been found again on five of the six victims Darlenia Johnson her body was found 11 days after I believe 
I believe that's what I said, 11 days after she had been abducted and therefore there was so much decomposition to her body, there was nothing to be found. Among the slew of local predators, authorities were looking into the Green Vega Rapist Gang. The gang were collectively responsible for numerous Washington, D.C. and surrounding Maryland vicinity rapes and abductions that occurred near the Washington Beltway. Logical investigation and intimate knowledge of the modus operandi of the Green Vega gang brought them to the forefront. The Green Vega gang members were individually interviewed by MPDC homicide detectives Fickling, Irving, and Richardson at Lorton Prison in Virginia, where the gang members were serving sentences in conjunction with the successful prosecutions of those crimes in the Superior Court of the District of Columbia. It was during this time that the Green Vega member claimed to have information that another gang member also serving time at Lorton for the Green Vega conviction had confessed to him that he had killed and participated in a couple of the murders that were being put off on the freeway phantom. Upon the promise of anonymity, the gang member identified the man who gave him the information, the date and location of the crime, and signature detail which were not provided to the public, but which was known only to the perpetrator and to the detectives. That signature information was correct. The inmate provided the information, who provided the information said he was not involved in the homicide and verified and his alibi was verified. During this period, an election was also being held in Maryland and one of the candidates publicly announced to the press that a break had occurred in the Freeway Phantom investigation and provided that an inmate at Lorton Prison had given said information. If you can picture it, as People Investigates described it, this inmate was in the backseat of the car with detectives and he was in the process of taking his second trip to show the detectives the area where he had been told that bodies had been dumped and things of that nature had occurred to the the victims that he was tying to this other inmate. He's in the back seat and it comes over the radio that this candidate is making this public announcement and it was described that this man clammed up immediately like again pardon my friends he shut the fuck up after the announcement the inmate who provided the information declined any further interview because we all know snitches get stitches and denied that he had ever provided any information. The second lead authorities looked into were ex-police officers Edward Sullivan and Tommy Simmons. Sullivan and Simmons, who had about 20 months combined on the force as police officers, had both resigned before the first freeway phantom murders were reported. In July, on July 14, 1971, the body of 14-year-old Angela Denise Barnes was found with a bullet to the back of her head and was discarded like the others off of a freeway. It was, 
I couldn't see because it was I saw this in a newspaper clipping but I believe that I read that it was off of the shoulder of Maryland Route 4 which is also the location that a couple of other bodies had been found it wasn't until it wasn't until 1974 when the arrests of Sullivan and Simmons happened that Barnes was taken from the freeway phantom victim list and the list was solidified at six. Let's see here. The final suspect that they looked into was in 1978. Authorities investigated 58-year-old Robert Elwood Askins, an ex-con and computer technician from D.C., who had a history of rapes, abductions, and murders. Askins' first crime was on December 28, 1938, when he was just 19 years old, as a college student and science club member at the Miners Teachers College. Askins reportedly served cyanide-laced whiskey to five prostitutes at a brothel, killing 31-year-old Ruth McDonald. On December 30th, two days later, he returned to the same brothel and stabbed to death 26-year-old prostitute Elizabeth Johnson. When arrested by police, Askins proclaimed himself to be a woman-hater. He was placed under mental observation at Washington, D.C.'s Gallinger Hospital, where Askins reportedly broke free from his restraints and beat three orderlies with a chair before being becoming subdued. It was at Askins' trial that he was revealed that he was a police informant aiding in the arrest of prostitutes. In April 1939, Askins was found criminally insane and remanded to St. Elizabeth's Hospital. Sound familiar? St. Elizabeth's Hospital is actually where the first two victims' bodies were found. Five months after his release in 1952, Askins would go on to strangle 42-year-old Laura Cook to death. In 1954, he was indicted for her murder, accused of several other assaults of similar circumstance, and retried for the 1938 murder, it having been, been determined that he was indeed sane upon committing the act. Despite claiming he intended to murder he intended the cyanide for himself planning suicide. He was convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to 20 years to life. The conviction was overturned in 1958. March of 1977, Askins was charged with abducting and raping a 24-year-old woman inside of his Washington, D.C. home. Homicide detective Lloyd Davis proceeded to question Askins and learned he had been charged with murder on several previous occasions. It was after the 1978 rape charge that Askins' home was searched by police in connection with the freeway phantom murders. Court documents were found in a desk drawer in which a judge had used the word tantamount an uncommon word that had appeared in the note dictated by the killer of Brenda Woodward. Furthermore, Askin's colleagues at the National Science Foundation reported that tantamount was a word that was a part of his regular speech and vernacular. 
A search warrant was was eventually obtained and investigators dug through Askins backyard. No physical evidence was obtained and Askins was not charged in connection with the freeway phantom killings. Askins, who died at the Federal Correctional Institution in Cumberland, Maryland on April 30, 2010, at the age of 91, remained in prison for two D.C. area abductions and rapes in the mid-70s, and had been contacted by both Davis and Press regarding the Freeway Phantom slayings. He denied any role in them, adding that he did not have, quote, the depravity of mind required to commit any of the crimes. Over the years, Romaine Jackson would continue to investigate the Freeway Phantom murder. At one point, all of the physical evidence collected had been destroyed. Romaine was able to obtain the archived documents at the FBI if the FBI had on file for the Freeway Phantom, but there was no longer any physical evidence and the, F- and the files the FBI were lacking a lot of information. Romaine was able to obtain the notebooks and other notes other detectives who had touched the cases had taken over the, over the course of time, but at best, that was at, that was at best. She still ended up retiring and the case was never solved. So, what had happened was this. Presumably, an already budding serial killer initially used the Vietnam War protests that literally shut down all of Washington, D.C. to his advantage to begin acting out on his urges. He preyed on children within his community, knowing that their disappearances and murders were not going to be priority for the police. Throughout the late spring and summer, he terrorized his community, going dormant for 10 months before succumbing to his urges again and committing his final documented murder in the area. At this stage, if he's still alive, He's at minimum in his late 60s to early 70s. And he thinks he's gotten away with murder for nearly 50 years. I want him to look over his shoulder every single day of his life. I hope some unsuspecting great nephew turns in a 23andMe kit in hopes of finding the family's African heritage and there's a hit in in somebody's database that we have now. I hope he lives with a bead of sweat permanently sliding halfway down his forehead and stinging his eyeballs from paranoia. I hope he's haunted by the faces of his victims when he opens and closes his eyes. I hope he knows that there are more people like myself in the true crime community who want to see resolve to this for the families of the victims, which means we're coming for him. Now, I would also be doing you guys a true crime disservice if I didn't point out a few similarities to another serial killing that transpired in the 70s that just, it just sent off all sorts of bells and whistles and alarms to me. I found that there were a lot of similarities between the Freeway Phantom and the Atlanta child killings. While I'm not 
necessarily suggesting that the two killers are the same person. I do find it interesting that the Freeway Phantom essentially vanished after a year and a half of stalking and killing young African-American girls in Washington, D.C. Five of the six, and presumably six out of the six, would most likely have had green synthetic fibers found on their persons. Their bodies were discarded off of roadways and they suffered sexual assault. They were also strangled. Their killer was comfortable moving among them because he was seen as a non-threat. He wasn't Ted Bundy or any of the other primarily white serial killers that we'd been introduced to during that time. He was quote-unquote safe, hence their ability to be abducted so effortlessly in broad daylight in most instances. In most instances. Now, between 1979 and 1981 in Atlanta, <clears throat> I'm reminded of, the si of similar stories that were being told by the parents of the boys and girls that went missing and were found. Children, this time boys primarily, were also making quick trips to the store for family or neighbors. They were hustling, making a couple of dollars here and there, running errands. They were surviving. They were living in an area that was not necessarily the best. Now, I am not familiar with DC that hard, but from what I've been told, there are definitely areas that are disproportionately lower income. And I believe that that is where these victims lie. And this is where their predator decided to strike where the iron was hot. Now, back to Atlanta. As I said, the children were primarily boys who were making quick trips to the store for family members, and they never returned home. People reported seeing these children in the process of going to or coming back, just like the girls in Washington, D.C., and then they just poof, just vanished. Okay, the children had also been cleaned and redressed, and some of them were not wearing their own clothes, as reported by their parents. Instead of the bodies being found off of the side of roads, most of them were found in abandoned buildings and dumped off of bridges near water. There were also green fibers, which I understand green green was an ugly color that was popular during that time in upholstery for homes as well as vehicles but I do find it interesting that green fibers were found on these children now keep in mind there was someone who was arrested and has subsequently been sentenced and has been doing time for the murders of these children in Atlanta but to play devil's advocate, I don't want to, but what if the Freeway Phantom and the Atlanta Child's murders were connected? What if the Phantom had relocated and evolved his killing style and murdered nearly 30 children in Atlanta over the course of two years? 
there are family members of the victims to this day who say that in Atlanta they don't believe that the person who was charged with the crimes was the person who perpetrated them. That's just some food for thought. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but when I see things that actually kind of remind me of another one, I also think that having the knowledge of these crimes being reported in newspapers, it's also very likely that the person who committed the crimes in Atlanta was copycatting the murders that the Freeway Phantom had done. So there you have it. I've got a couple of theories where the Freeway Phantom could have relocated and continued to kill. He inspired a copycat killer. I mean, that's it. That's what had happened. Now, since this is going to be the second drop of the month, but I did say I was going to drop another one, I believe in a couple of weeks, because I love you guys, my listeners, I'm still going to continue with the original episode that I was going to go ahead and research and drop in two weeks time. And I'll go ahead and do that for you. And we'll just consider that like a bonus drop for the month of February. Who knows? You know, like I'm feeling generous. Got this microphone. It's kind of cool. You know, and all of these lesser known true crimes to bring to you. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode have a great evening morning afternoon time of day here we go with our beautiful outro music